we are in, uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, uh, it's hard to say uh, that this is a positive, but this is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. And we're going to get into why in a minute, but we're going to look at the, the betrayal of Christ by Peter. And we're going to look at this in John chapter 13. Remember, this is the upper room discourse. This is a night before Jesus is crucified. Uh, he has an intimate time of five chapters, one night with his disciples, in which we see some of the most intimacy between uh, our master and his people, his, uh, his, his uh, servants. He's taught them the love. He showed them by example to be a minister and to wash each other's feet. We talked about this. We we talked about how he handled the betrayal of Judas. And now we're going to see him handling the betrayal uh, of Peter. Uh, and we're going to learn some great life lessons from this. Last week we focused on loving one another and that Jesus changed the element and he changed the standard. Uh, you've heard it used to say, love thy neighbor as thyself, and Jesus is going to change it. Not that we don't still love our neighbor, but he says to love one another as I have loved you. So the standard is not how we love each ourselves, but the standard has been greatly expanded as now it's how Christ loves us. We talked about that in good detail last week as we move through this uh, upper room discourse. Today we're going to look at Peter's portrayal, and then we're going to look at the the uh, sixth, I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So let's look at uh, 1336 through the last couple of verses, then I'll read 14, 1 through 11, and I'll let, uh, let the good reader, let Austin read this, 36 through 38. And then 14, 1 through 11, and we'll uh, get started. So we see Peter betrays Christ. It is at a time of great sadness from the disciples. Jesus has called them to love. Judas Iscariot has just betrayed Jesus. And Peter is going to betray Jesus. And it is, first of all, I want you to know that it is prophecy fulfilled. Simon Peter had the best intentions of the world. He had no intention whatsoever. He was sincere when he said, I will die for you. Everybody may stumble, but not Peter. This was part of Peter's personality. He was an alpha male. He was, he was zealous for Christ. He loved Christ. He had every intention to follow Christ, yet he failed. So we're going to learn some great lessons from this. And we see Jesus predicting this. Uh, he's told him to love one another. Uh, uh, he's just uh, in verse, uh, this starts in verse 33. Little children, he's talking to his disciples in an endearing way. He's telling them in verse 33, I'm, I'm not going to be with you any longer. Uh, I'm fixing to die. I'm fixing to be buried. I'm fixing to resurrect from the dead in three days. He said, I'm going to be with you a little while longer. You're going to seek me. But where I'm going, you cannot come. You cannot die like I'm going to die right now. You cannot raise from the dead like I'm going to do right now. So specifically, I'm talking about my death, my burial, my resurrection to the disciples. He tells them to love one another. The evidence that you love one another is going to be the principal uh, impact that you're going to have on the world, that you love one another. And then Simon Peter, as he's listening in his zealousy, 
he picks up on this a little while longer and you can't be with me. And he says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. So the first thing we see in this, prophecy is about to be fulfilled. It is not an accident, and it is in the divine providence of God that Peter betrays Jesus. It has been predicted in the Scripture. Jesus predicted in the Synoptic Gospels. And let's look at the prediction that Jesus is going to be betrayed, and He is going to be... The, the sheep are going to be scattered. We see that in Zechariah 13. Remember when we did the book of Zechariah. The coming of Christ as the shepherd, and we talked about his rejection. We're going to, we saw that God is going to strike the shepherd. God strikes his own son, Jesus. And as a consequence of his striking his son, Jesus, the sheep, which are the disciples, the followers of Christ, they're going to be scattered. So we see Zechariah 13:7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. God speaking against my son. I'm going to awake a sword against my son, against the man who is my companion. Speaking of Christ and his unique relationship with the Father. Says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So this is a prophecy that the shepherd is going to be struck. That is, at at crucifixion, he is going to be forsaken by the Father, and the sins of his people are going to be poured on the Son. And he predicts that when he is crucified, when the sword comes against him, when he's killed, that the sheep are going to be scattered. So we see this prophesied in Zechariah 13.7. And we see Jesus tell the disciples time and time again what's going to happen. And the reason He does it is to increase their dependence and trust on Him to prove that He is who He says He is. He's God. And so He knows the future. He knows it accurately. So if He tells them, like He told them Judas Iscariot was going to betray Him, He did that. So when it happens, you're going to say, Aha! Jesus told us this would happen. This is going to be (coughs) further verification that Jesus is God. He is who He says He was. And so He prophesies that that the sheep are going to be scattered and that the disciples themselves will be scattered. Look at uh, <clears throat> John 16.32. Excuse me. <clears throat> John 16.32. Look what He says. John 16.32. Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, my hour is now come that you will be scattered, each to his own place, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I speak to you, that in me you may have peace. And we're going to talk about this in a minute. But he tells them they're going to be scattered. I'm going to be left alone, but I'm not alone, because my Father is always with me. So he predicts it in John 16:32. Turn back to Mark. We're going to be looking at Mark and Luke and Matthew a bunch in the synoptics, as each gives a different... Uh, understanding, level of understanding of this betrayal. And we're really going to camp out in Luke uh, 22 in a second. But uh, this betrayal of Peter by Je- betrayal of Jesus by Peter was prophesied. Look at Mark 14, 27. Mark 14, 27. Jesus said to them, all of you, Peter is the only one that verbally 
betrayed Jesus, but all of them betrayed Jesus. They all scattered. They all ran for fear of their lives. And Jesus said, all of you are going to be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, and he quotes from Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So we see that this is part, and keep your finger there because I'm going to be here in the next, the next section here. But then you look at verse 50. Uh, Mark 14:50. Then they all forsook him and fled. After the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter cut Malchus's the servant's ear off, uh, then they all fled as as Judas betrayed Jesus. He gave him a kiss, and then they brought him before uh, uh, Herod and the Sanhedrin. And we'll talk about that in the next coming study. So it was prophesied by Jesus, and why it was is so that they would know who he was. And that he knew it was going to happen, and that knowing it would happen, it would increase their trust in him. So we see that this prophecy, Peter's uh, betrayal, is prophesied by Christ. And then we see in this verse that Jesus not only predicts the betrayal, but he predicts the martyrdom of Peter. Let's look at this, and we see 13. He said, where you are going, you cannot follow me now. The implication is, you're going to follow me later. And the implication is not only are you going to follow me later, but it's going to be the exact replication of how I'm going to die. You're going to fo- you can't follow me now, but you're going to follow me afterward. And we see this summed up. Look at John 24. John 21, there's not a John 24. So Peter says, you can't follow me now, but afterward you're going to do it. And then we see John the Apostle through the Holy Spirit interpret this phrase of Jesus. And we see this in 21.18 of John. And we uh, may or may not go over this again when we get here. He says, Most assuredly I say unto you, talking to Peter, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. So we see Peter, he said, you can't follow me now, but you're going to follow me later. He speaks of his betrayal, and he speaks of his martyrdom as interpreted from the other scripture. And and history, Jewish history, not in the Bible, but Jewish history, reliable witness says that Peter was hung upside down on a cross. And Peter hung upside down because he did not, he did not want to be hung and he didn't think himself worthy to be hung like his master, Jesus Christ. So he was girded, he was carried where he didn't want to go, his hands were stretched out, and he died, as Jesus predicted, his martyrdom. And so we see that Peter's betrayal was was prophesied and it was predicted. And then we see what it also not only does it predict his martyrdom, but it does something different. It does. It says in verse 13, but you shall follow me afterwards. Not not only predicts his martyrdom, but it predicts our blessed hope. 
that Jesus Christ would die on a cross, but He would be resurrected from that cross, and He would be the first fruits, and then we too who are in Christ, we will one day have our resurrected body. So He predicts the martyrdom, but He also predicts to Peter and to us, his people who read this 2,000 years later, that we're going to go, we're not going to, we weren't able to go with him on the cross, but because of the cross, we are going to be with him where he is as we look into the sixth I am. So he predicts the martyrdom, but he also gives us hope that we too will follow him afterward, speaking of his ascension after his resurrection and the glory. Does everybody understand that? So it's hopeful, it's predictive, and it has great effects on us today. Everybody understand that? Now, I want to talk about something that's going to blow your little mind cells. Not that your mind cells are little. One of my favorite scriptures. This, the purpose of this betrayal, not only the prophecy, not only the predictive nature element, but what it teaches us today. This didn't happen 2,000 years ago as an accident. Peter made his own choice, and Peter was responsible for what he did, just like Judas Iscariot was, but it was also predetermined by God. And how do he put that together? We don't. We just accept that that's what the Scripture teaches. We don't try to figure it out. But look at Luke 22, and I want to look at 31 through 34. And if this doesn't comfort you, I don't know what else Scripture can do. Luke 22. This is talking about the betrayal of Peter. And I want you to see how determined it is by God. I want you to see how sovereign God in it is in it. I want you to see how this applies to you and me. First thing I want to see is prayed for in advance. Look at this, 22, 31 through 34. Jesus, talking about Peter's future denial. Simon, the Lord said, Simon, Simon. He says it twice to give us a deeper sense of the veracity of what he's going to say. He speaks of it twice to give us this intimacy and the love of God, the sovereignty of God in Peter's life. He says, Peter... Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Does that surprise you? Satan hates God's children. He hates God and everything attached to God. And he wants to destroy us. Scripture says that Satan is a roaring lion. He's an accuser of the brethren. And he wants to destroy you. He came to kill and destroy. He's a liar, the father of lies. And all of these things he does to ruin you and to ruin me. Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked for you. Now, we don't want to speculate how he did it, but the only thing we have to look at is, is, is other Scripture, and the same way he asked for Job. Job was a righteous man, loved God, but Job had a mortal enemy, and that mortal enemy is all of us have a mortal enemy, and that mortal enemy is Satan. And Satan wants to destroy God's people. And thinking he can destroy the witness of God and the faith of God in his people. That's why he does it. But he, Jesus says, Satan wants to 
sift you as wheat. But then what is, what does Jesus say? But, underline that, Satan wants to do this, but I am sovereign over Satan. Satan cannot do but what I allow him to do. He wanted to destroy Job, and Job said, you can't kill him. God said, you can't kill Job, and you can't... Uh, for, let's just look at it. I want to uh, look at Job real, real fast. Job 1, uh, uh, God is sovereign over the devil. Spurgeon used to say... Uh, 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 Satan is the devil, but he's God's devil. He's chained and he's limited by the sovereignty of God. Uh, one twelve, uh, uh, Satan falsely accuses the character of God, and he says that Job is only worshiping God because God is blessing him. If you'll let me destroy Job and all that he's got, then he'll curse you. And so he's trying to prove the the, uh, the inauthenticity of, of Job and his faithfulness to God. But look at one twelve. And the Lord said to Satan, All that he has is in your power. Do not lay a hand on his person. So he took his family, his possessions, everything he had, but Satan could not lay a hand on his person. Okay? And then we see the next accusation and next health. And look at chapter 2. Verse 6, uh, he says, well, you've taken everything he has, but, if, but he will curse you if you take his health away. And then God says to Satan, uh, verse chapter 2, verse 6, And the Lord said to Satan, he's in your hand, but you can't kill him. And so he gave him boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, and he scratched these boils, and they oozed, and he used... Uh, pottery, and that gave him relief, and he uh, he basically uh, because but bore the emotional pain, and he actually accused God of injustice, but God brought him to repentance. But that is the devil is God's devil in the sense that he controls him, and so the Satan's intention is to ruin Peter, is to ruin us. But what Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. Our Savior prays for us right now. He is our mediator and He is mediating for us at this very second. And it is by His mediation and by His prayers that we are protected from satanic darts and evil one. If we only knew, like Elisha told his servant... You remember he was afraid and he said, open his eyes, Lord. And he opened his eyes and there were angels and myriads of protections that God had sent that that servant couldn't see. And I would caution you and me that we would just understand that God has a hedge of protection about his people. And Satan has limited ability to attack us. And Jesus is praying for you. Does that encourage you? Satan wants to destroy you, but Jesus says, I am praying for you. And we see that uh, 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 in various verses. We see that in Job. But look what Jesus, look at this, how, this is an example of how he prays for us. John seventeen 15. We're going to camp on this. But this is Jesus as He outwardly, verbally, out loud prayed for His disciples. And this is just a picture of how He prays for us even now. And look how He prays. He prays, He says, don't take them out of trouble, 
but preserve them through trouble. Let's look at 17.15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So just as Jesus said, I'm praying for you, Peter. The devil wants to ruin you and sift you as wheat, ground you to powder, ruin your testimony and your faith and your influence on generation after generation. I'm praying for you. And then Jesus in his prayer says, don't take them out of the world. I'm not praying that you help them to escape all trouble because they're like me. They're going to suffer persecution. So we don't pray that that Christ takes us out of trouble, we pray that He preserves us through the trouble, right? And so He said, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, John 17, 15, but I pray that you keep them from the evil one. So anything that happens to your life is is allowed by God in His providence, and He is purposeful in it, what He allows. And He, in His sovereignty, has chosen to keep us here on this planet for His good pleasure and for His purposes, and He chooses to use us empty vessels filled with His Spirit. Yes, sir? Paul said the same thing, didn't he? To live as Christ, to die as gain. To die would be to be gone from all the tribulation of the world and be with Christ. Exactly. That would be in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, chapter 1, 121, to live is Christ and to die is gain. By the way, we're going to do this Tuesday, so you just gave it away, Rusty. That's okay. But to live on in the flesh, that's fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident this, I know I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy of faith that you're rejoicing for may, for me may be more abundant in Christ for my coming to you again. So Paul said the same thing. Paul said there's a conflict. I'd rather be in glory, but the purposes of Christ are going to be fulfilled by me lingering here. And by me getting out of this jail. And so, so Jesus prays for us. Satan wants to ruin us, but Jesus prays for us. And why does he pray for us? Look what he says. I pray for you. There's a purpose. Why does he pray for Peter? And why does he allow the betrayal? Look at this. I pray for you. There's always a reason. That, circle it, the reason that Jesus is praying for us against Satan and against His will be done, that what? Your faith won't fail, so your faith won't fail. And there's another reason. Your faith won't fail, and when you have returned to me, God in His sovereignty has said, not only am I praying that your faith won't fail, but I am praying and you will repent. That is that is written in past tense with future certainty. He says, I'm, fa- I'm praying that your faith won't fail. And look what He says, and when you have returned to Me. This isn't a might, this isn't a possibility. When you have returned to Me. Jesus not only knew of the betrayal, but He knew that He would repent and turn from this. As a matter of fact, Scripture says He weeps bitterly. 
So Jesus prays that his faith won't fail, and he prays for his repentance, and his prayer is a certainty in Peter's life. When you have returned, in point number three, what is the next, after he repents and after his faith don't fail, what's the next reason why Jesus prays for him? Strengthen brothers. So Jesus prays for Peter for his faith not to fail, which is a gift from God anyway, Jesus being the object of the faith. He prays for his repentance, which is a certainty. There's no might, if, or should. It's will repent. And then that repentance is going to strengthen the brothers. How many times did, did, uh, did Peter deny Jesus? I think it's amazing. Uh, when you, when you look at after the resurrection and the angels appearing and, and the men running to it and the difference of appearance, what did the angels say to the women? In Mark, only Mark, he says, he tells to Mark, he says, go tell your disciples and Peter. Why did he say and Peter? Because Peter needed to hear that. Because Peter needed to be encouraged by his heavenly Father. He needed to be encouraged by the Spirit of Christ. He needed to be encouraged by Jesus himself. Can you imagine the despair in Peter's braggadocial heart, he let his Savior down. When he said, everybody may do it, but not me. He needed to be encouraged. We need to be encouraged. Jesus says, I'm praying for you. You're going to repent. And after that, you're going to strengthen your brothers. And he sent an angel. And that angel said, you go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter didn't lose his position in Christ because he failed. All of us have betrayed Christ. Thank God we don't lose our position in Him because we betray Him. You may not have betrayed Him outwardly, uh, verbally, but you betray Him. I betray Him every day through our actions and our sin. So Jesus said, praying for you, you're going to repent. I want you to strengthen your brothers. And we see this. And there's no... Doubt that when Jesus ascends, I mean, before He ascends into heaven, look at John 8, just look at John 20. Jesus, in the act of love, this picture of this beauty of love and repentance and, and, uh, and forgiveness, uh, there is no doubt in John 21, 15 through 21, Jesus comes up to Peter. They've caught 153 fish. They've eaten breakfast. Jesus specifically comes to Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, in the same endearing way that he said to him before he's, uh, before he prays for him, before he betrays him, he comes to him in this same loving manner. And he said, Peter, do you agape love me? Do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me more than these, these fish, this lifestyle? Do you love me more than the accolades of men? Are you willing to die for me now? He says, do you agape love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you like a brother. 
I'm fond of you. And Jesus said again, Peter, do you agape love me? And Peter said, I love you like a brother. And then Jesus said, Peter, do you love me like a brother? And Peter said, yeah. It grieved Peter. Scripture says it grieved him because he understood the standard. He didn't love Christ as he should. And he saw that Jesus said, do you love me like a brother? And he said, yep, I love you like a brother. And that grieved Peter. But Peter's going to be changed. And that coward that was just trying to protect himself, although he was an alpha male, and he had every intention in his head to persevere and be a warrior for the Lord, when it came down to it, his best intentions and his foolish pride, and he fell. And it was a great fall. But, thank goodness for this, right? You everybody see that? The betrayal of... of uh, the betrayal and strengthening. Uh, and we see this Peter, this same Peter who had the bravado and all the intentions. Look what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit fills them. Look at this difference and look at this in, uh, uh, where am I at here? Let's look at, uh, did I not write this down? I should have. I did. Let me see. Acts. Where am I at in Acts? Everybody, it's hard to see when I'm up here. Let's see. Da, 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 John. Da, da, da. Now, let's see. Where am I? I don't have that. Let's look, I'll find it. Acts. The difference between this Peter and the Holy Spirit-filled Peter. Thank you. Let's look at Acts 2.14. And there's several. And I don't have this here. I'm oh, darn. So let's write this down. 2.14. He's standing up and he's praying. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. Standing with the eleven, raised in voice and said, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Heed my words. We're not drunk, but the Holy Spirit has come upon us. That is not what I was looking at. Let's look at Peter. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. They had forbid them to preach in the name of Christ. They had threatened them. Look at Peter. Did he say, okay, I don't even know Jesus? No, 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 no. Verse, chapter 4, verse 3. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And so we see this great difference in Peter's life as this Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes upon him that he's bold now. And uh, we see that uh, all through the... Uh, uh, let's look at Acts 4. Look what he even prays for. Uh, 4.31. He's, he's preaching, he's praying. He, look what he says in 4.31. When they prayed... They were assembled together. Where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were filled with the Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. So the Holy Spirit now comes, fills Peter, and it changes him. His intentions are realized because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the only way our intentions can be realized when the Holy Spirit works in us, right? 
We have these grandiose plans for God. But unless the Holy Spirit equips us and motivates us and gives us this ability, therefore not. But Peter' intentions are realized. Now I want you to look camp on this one. Acts 22, verse 61. And I want you to think about this. I don't want to speculate on Scripture. Never want to be guilty about that. But this is here for a purpose, and it is, it is a purpose to help us to think. 2261. 2261 of Luke. I said Acts. There's not a verse 61 in 22, is there? But there is a chapter 22. Look at this. And I want you to circle this, underline this, put an asterisk beside this. And as Jesus said, let this sink down into your ears. And this is Peter denied him the third time. Verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. And Peter went out. Think about that. Peter was looked at by Jesus. I don't want to speculate, but what do you think that look was? Knowing Jesus, who He is, the purpose that He prayed for and the prediction of it, Peter looked at Jesus. And I want you and I want me, the next time we're contemplating sin, to realize what look would that get from Jesus. Peter looked at Jesus. How did he look at Him? Did he look at Him with disappointed eyes? Disillusioned eyes? So he he was not disappointed. I think he was looking at him to say, I love you, Peter. I love you, Peter. That's the way he looked at him. And that love, love overcomes a multitude of... When he looked at Jesus, Peter looked at... Je- Jesus looked at Peter. He wept bitterly. Think about that. How Jesus reacts to us. Peter betrayed him. When Judas betrayed him, same thing. He gave him that final choice, chance to repent. He offered him that bread. He let him sit by him. Peter, uh, Judas, uh, did not repent, did not turn. Jesus looked at Peter. And I just want that thought to, you to meditate on that thought. The scriptures say the word selah in the Psalms, S-E-L-A-H. That means chew on that a while. I want you to chew on this a while. Jesus looked at Peter. And he looked at him not disappointed, not discouraged, not frustrated, not surprised. And that's the same way Jesus looks at us. With eyes of love, with eyes desiring repentance, with eyes desiring that sin or whatever to change others. Jesus looked at Peter. This is 22. And if you don't get anything out of this today, contemplate Jesus looking at you. And whatever you choose to do, 
Jesus looking at you. And I just, I think about that all the time. How does Jesus look at me? My attitudes toward whomever I run across. How does Jesus look at me? Any comments about that? Any other suggestions about that? It can only be a look of love, concern, desiring for repentance. That's how he looked at Peter. Peter sensed that, and God used that to his glory, and Peter wept bitterly. He had godly sorrow. He changed his mind. His heart was changed, and he never did it again. It should. Yes. When you get John 17, if you can read John 17 without any emotional, wow. Something's not plugged in right. And we'll get into that. Jesus looked at Peter. Now, let's look at uh, uh, the restoration. We've talked about this a bit. I just want to look at a few verses. Look at the change now. And the evidence of the restoration and the change. And we see that in... Uh, uh, just look at a few, look at Peter now after the Holy Spirit is changing him, is working in his heart. This is turned to his epistle. Second Peter. There has to be evidence of the work of God in us. And it's not only a boldness, but it is a renewed love for the Word and reminding of people for the strengthening of the brothers. Jesus prayed for him to strengthen the brothers, and this is what he does. The whole book of First and Second Peter, the context is strengthening the brothers during persecution. He's been there. God has used this providential act for His glory to encourage, just like Paul said, you comfort those with the comfort which you've been comforted with, right? So Peter does this. Second Peter, I could go on and on, 1, 3, and 4. Uh, uh, As His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given exceeding great and precious promises, that we may be partakers of Christ's nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world through lust, strengthening the brothers. You're being persecuted. But adhere, remember the promises, and may you be strengthened in your faith by the promises that I have given you until Peter preaches this. Look at 12 through 15, uh, the same Second Peter uh, chapter 1. Peter saying, for this reason, I'm not going to be negligent, negligent to remind you of these things. What I just said, though you know them and you are established in the present truth. I know you guys know this. But as Peter said, we need to be reminded, yes, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that I'm fixing to die. I'm going to put off this tent, just as our Lord Jesus showed me. We talked about that. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after I die. Chapter 3. Peter doing the same thing. He's telling them, don't look at the temporary. As Paul said, hey, uh, we want to look to the eternal. We want to look to the permanent things. Look at Peter. Look what he says. Second Peter 3.11. All these things are going to be dissolved. This planet is going to be dissolved and things are going to change, he says. But 
So he says that these things are happening. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Look for the coming of the day of the Lord. And then he reminds them of what's going to happen. Then verse 13, we, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so he reminds them. And then he ends it with verse verse 17. Beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness. Peter said this by experienced. He was steadfast in his own mind. He understood our tendencies. And he said, beware lest you fall. Notice what it says, your own steadfastness. Not God's, but your own. Lest you be led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He strengthened the brothers. He repented. His faith didn't fail. Jesus' prayers are answered. Now we got some principles here I want us to look at. And uh, some principles I want us to look at. There are many. I just got a few. We saw this one. Pride always goes before a fall. Paul says, Paul would know. He says, take heed to yourselves. Lest you fall. He warns the church at Galatia, if you think more highly of yourself than you ought to, take heed. If you think you've arrived, be careful. You're fixing to be shown that you haven't. Okay? If you think, if you think in your mind with these intentions, oh, they may fall away, but not me. Take heed lest you fall. Pride always goes before a fall. And then you've got some other verses uh, that we can look at. Uh, the second one uh, is so, so relevant. Flesh is weak. And so because our flesh is weak, we must pray that we don't fall into temptation. And that was typified... By Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He told them to pray. And what did they do? They crashed. Jesus came back to them. Couldn't you pray with me one hour? Does that get a little disappointing tone to it? Would, does Jesus say to you, Can't you pray an hour? I'll let the Lord convict you of that. But... uh He tells us the flesh is weak. We see that in Matthew 26, 41. If you don't believe me, it's right there. So let's look at it. 26, 41, they're in the garden. Jesus talking to His disciples after He'd found them asleep twice. He said, Could you not watch for me for one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing. The intentions are there. Our minds. Paul said, with our minds I serve the law of God, God, but with my flesh, the things I want to do, I don't do. That's what he's saying. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
So principle from Peter's betrayal, pride goes before fall. The flesh is weak. You pray unless you fall into temptation. Do not think you are an exception to the rule. How many of us have done that? I saw a couple of nods. You're an honest person if you nodded. If you didn't respond, it'll be okay. We must pray before we... Fear is overcome by love. Fear overcome, overcome, is overcome, insert, is overcome by love. Fear, the, the, the normal response of Peter when they said, surely you were one of his disciples, your speech betrays you. He cursed and says, I don't even know the man. He was afraid. And so he denies. And so that fear, that emotional response, he denied Christ. But it tells us in 1 John that... What does it tell us in 1 John? It tells us in 1 John 4, 17 and 19, love of Christ overcomes our fear because 1 John 4, 17 through 19, love has been perfected among us in this, that we have boldness in the day of judgment because as He is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he loved us. Christ's love takes away our fear because we have no anticipation of judgment anymore. We are in Christ. And so we don't fear men because all they can do is kill us, right? But we fear him who can destroy the soul in eternity. So flesh is weak. Fear is overcome by love. And the last thing, uh, and I've already talked about this, is that uh, God's Spirit... Emboldens us. Emboldens us. And that's where the verses in Acts were that I couldn't find. Because I went out of order. But you can look at those. You can look at those. Paul himself prayed for boldness. If you look at Ephesians 3.12. As, uh, and then Ephesians 6. Uh, Paul knew the flesh was weak. He knew the threatenings of the flesh. He knew the pain of suffering. You want to look at the pains and the sufferings of Paul, you can look in 2 Corinthians, look through there. But look, uh, he understood uh, the timidity, the natural timidity of, of pain and suffering. So Paul prayed for this. Look at uh, uh, Ephesians three twelve. In whom, just talking about the Christ, the mystery of the gospel, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. And then he says, I pray and ask that you don't lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. And look what he asked the church at Ephesus to pray for him after he told him to put on the whole armament, told him to put on the breastplate and the helmet of salvation and all these accoutrements, these armaments. Look what he says in 6.18. He says, 
praying always with prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And he says, pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. He says, because I'm a slave, I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may speak boldly like I ought to, like you ought to, like I ought to. So everybody understand the temptation, the betrayal of of Christ by Peter. Hopefully it helps you look at it a little differently. And chew on this one this week. Jesus looked at Peter. Put your name in there. And uh, now I want to look at the sixth I am. As as, uh, Peter has betrayed Jesus, Jesus predicted it. And now in this context... The disciples are about to be scattered. They're about to be afraid. They're about to abandon Him. Their hearts, that word troubled means their hearts are agitated. Their hearts are filled with anxiety and fear and all the typical emotions that would go along with what's about to happen. Jesus said, let not your hearts, don't let your emotions and your wills and Everything that is about you, be agitated. Don't be overcome by this fear that's about to happen. Let not your hearts be troubled. And then first thing I want you to see is uh, there's comfort in this. Let me erase this. Can you hear? Do you sense Jesus' Spirit telling you not to fear? I hope you do. Because... We are living in fearful times. And this same application that Jesus tells the disciples is applicable to you and I today as if it was written today in 2019. Brothers and sisters, do not let your hearts be troubled because there's a lot of things to be troubled about. And if you uh, don't know what's going on, uh, I pray that you would become aware. The sixth I am statement starts out with, let not your hearts be troubled. That's a command. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why? 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 Because of who I am. If you believe in God, believe also in me. I've been telling you for three and a half years that if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I've told you that all the works that I do, I do in my Father's name, and I don't do anything apart from His permissive will, and I do what He tells me to do. And I do everything for His glory. And I've told you, my Spirit has told you that I am the Word and I am God and that I became incarnate and I became and took on real humanity. And I told you all these things about you in the Logos in the, in the beginning of the book of John. And I am fulfilling this. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm God. I'm man and I'm God. And because I'm God, your hearts shouldn't be filled with anxiety. He's got us. We can trust Him. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. I think that's a verse we need to put in our mind, right? Because his disciples are afraid, scattered. He knew their faith would fail. They'd be confused and sad. And we see that. Look at Luke 24. If you just want to look at the emotion of the disciples and what they were going through. I don't think I've uh, ever heard a sermon on the emotion and the anxiety and the fear of the disciples. And Luke is a doctor. And Luke as a physician, would be concerned with the whole well-being of the person. And he writes about the whole well-being of the person, unlike any of the other synoptics. But look how he charts this about some troubling effects the disciples have. You'll look at Luke 24. Uh, look at these emotions. Can you imagine they've been told for three and a half years that Jesus is going to die and he's going to be buried. And then after three days, he's going to rise again and they're obtuse. They cannot understand it because Spirit hasn't enlightened their hearts and given them uh, this faith they need. Look at this. They go to the tomb. The tomb is rolled away. They should have remembered. Jesus told them this was going to happen. But look at the way they reacted humanly. 24-4. And as it happened, they didn't find the body of the Lord in the tomb. The tomb is the stone is rolled away. They were greatly perplexed about this. So they're troubled in their hearts because they're perplexed. You know what it means to be perplexed? They're perplexed. What does it mean to be perplexed? Confused? No direction. Disoriented. But I thought, I thought, I thought. What? Hopeless. There's a sense of hopelessness about that. Perplexity. So we see that. Look at verse 11. They're told by the angels that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. He told you He was going to be raised from the dead. He told you He's going to meet you in Galilee. This is part of the perplexity. Look at verse 11. As, as they witness Mary and Magdalene come to Him and tell Him these things, their words seem to be like idle tales, and they didn't believe they're perplexed. It just seemed like, I'd call this, this just seems like that, that theology was just a, just a head knowledge to them. All these things I've been taught, this seems like it was all just an illusion. It's not going to happen. They were, they were confused and perplexed. So it's like idle tales to them. And that includes what Jesus told them. Let's look at 16. The disciples, on the road to Emmaus, as they walk with Jesus, two disciples, but their eyes were restrained, and they did not know Him. That just tells you of the troubledness of their hearts. They were confused. Look at verse, uh, if you move on, verse 16. Did I just read 16? No. Yeah, I just read 16. Let's look at uh, 21. 21, look at this. We were hoping that Jesus was going to redeem Israel. 
See, they had their hopes. They still thought, like everybody else, that Jesus is going to raise up a messianic kingdom and he was going to become a literal king and rescue the nation of Israel from Roman captivity. They didn't understand what he meant by the kingdom of heaven is internal and it's not external. They said, man, we thought he was going to set up his own kingdom here. Can you imagine what's going through their heads? We were hoping, besides all this, it's the third day and nothing's happened. And they didn't even know it was Jesus walking beside him. And I'll let you chew on that for a while. 36 and 37. Look at this emotion. Now as they said these things, Jesus stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you agitated? Why are you anxious? Why are you filled with fear? Why do you doubt in your hearts? I asked me that same question. Why do you doubt? We do it. The Bible tells us not to be anxious because we're anxious. Right? Trust. Trust. Everybody understand? Let not your hearts be troubled. And then he says to them this. We go back to John. We go back to John. I'll probably have to finish this next week. I was hoping I didn't, but hey, it's okay. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, how do we know where you're going? And how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. No one comes to the Father Except through me. This is the sixth I am that decrees his deity. I don't have it in the notes. But put this down if you're interested in putting this down. He says to them, I am, identifies himself with Yahweh, self-existent one of the Old Testament. We've talked about this many times. I am the way. That's a, a definitive article. That means the only way. It's not a way, some way, another way. It's like people try to go in another way except through the gate, through the, through the door, uh, the sheep. He says, I am the way. That's an infinitive. It's an exclusive. I am the way. The word for way, and I'll put this here, is I am the hodos. And the way means I am the path. I am the road. This is a journey that you are sojourning are. You are pilgrims in this journey. And I am the destination to the journey. I am the direction to get from one point to another. I, Thomas, I, disciples, I, people in this class, Jesus is the exclusive only, no alternative. He is the hodos. The disciples before Antioch were called followers of the way before they became Christians. And so they were followers of the path. That path is narrow. That path has to be striven. 
to get to, and it is difficult, and it is only through Christ the way. And this, another connotation of this that I like, it's the Christian lifestyle. It's the day-to-day walk that we do every day is only made possible by Jesus the Hodos, the way. You cannot walk, be faithful, found worthy, walk worthy of the vocation unless Christ is your substance and has changed you, right? So he said, I am the exclusive way. Men hate this declaration. Why do men hate this declaration? They want their own way, pride. That's exclusive. How possibly could he say he's it? Because he's God. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. The word truth is a great word, and too bad I can't spell it. I pronounce it A-L-E, and there's a little U pronouncement up here. The Althua. And uh, that could be wrong. I'm not a Greek guy. That's a, this is a noun, person, place, or thing. This is a verb. This is an action word. I love this. He said, I'm the truth. I am reality. That's the word. I am reality. I am the only reality. I'm the only thing that matters. My truth is exclusive. My reality is the only thing that matters. So those of you who watch reality shows, that's not reality. <laughs> Jesus is the only reality. And we are accountable to that reality, right? He's the only answer. I am the way, the truth, I am the reality. And I am the life. That's the great word, Zoa. I'm the Zoa life that we read about in Peter. He gives us everything pertaining to the Zoa life. And that is a uh, noun, of course. And that speaks of physical, but it more importantly speaks to spiritual life. He's the source. He's the giver of it. All life sustains by Him, from Him, to Him. And so we see that I am the hodos, I am reality, the only reality, and I am the source of physical and spiritual life. So because He is, we don't have to be troubled. And I'm going to let you go with that, because what I have to say afterwards are going to be a little different from a normal exegesis of the text, and I want you to be able to chew on that with time. And I will talk about that next week. Any comments or questions? Thank you for your attention. Jesus looks at you. Think about that this week.